Most fans of true crime would love the chance to experience catching a killer. This is where Hunt a Killer comes in. This is the best way to get in the shoes of a real detective and feel like you're solving an actual real-life murder. I am absolutely addicted to Hack. I've been subscribed to their six-episode seasons since they were a thing, and have played all but one of their standalone games. My office is filled with documents and evidence from their cases, and there's nothing like filing it away when you've solved the case and it's closed. If you'd like to get your hands on one of their standalone cases, use our code SIRENS at checkout on their website, www.huntakiller.com. And hey, every episode helps fund the Cold Case Foundation, a non profit that assists in bringing justice to unsolved cases throughout the country and it's rex approved you're listening to sirens a true crime podcast brought to you by the sirens network this podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. So I'm just going to put it out there. If I... If I get choked up or if my voice cracks or whatever, <laughs> please forgive me. This is uh, extremely upsetting. I remember every freaking moment of this. I remember all the men and women who are first responders who came from all over the nation to help us. You know, they yeah. needed hotel stay and all that kind of stuff. There's just, it was very traumatic for anyone and everyone and especially to see that as a child it makes you and it's not very far from home it makes you feel very weary and unsafe so if we have to take a minute we have to take a minute if we have to take a minute just (laughs) bear with me because it makes me really fucking sad and mad all right i'm gonna start off with uh timothy mcveigh he was born on april 23rd 1968 in lockport new york and he was the only son of three children. His parents divorced when he was 10 years old, and he was raised by his father in Pendleton, New York, which is where he lived when this happened. Mm. McVeigh claimed to have been a target of bullying at school, and he took refuge in a fantasy world where he imagined retaliating against the bullies. At the end of his life, he stated his belief that the U.S. government is the ultimate bully. Most who knew McVeigh remember him as being very shy and withdrawn, while a few described him as an outgoing and playful child who withdrew as an adolescent. McVeigh is said to have had only one girlfriend during his adolescence. He later stated to journalists that he did not have any idea how to impress girls. His neighbors actually said they were like a second family to him, and they said that he would he would hang out with the neighborhood kids, he would hang out with their children, he like taught them how to play basketball, he was like a big brother to everybody. Hmm. and monster to me. That's all I see when I see his face. Mm, Yeah. An an absolute devil. And so to think of this guy like, (laughs) you're letting him be around your children. (laughs) And yeah, like as a child, you know, just it's like, how did you go from normalcy to just the effects of war blow my mind? So we'll get to that. In high school, he became interested in computers and he hacked into government computer systems on his Commodore 64 under the handle The Wanderer. Mm. Oh my God. That <laughs> weird. I love that song. You just ruined that song. Right. He's 
It's taken from the song by Dion. Oh, how rude. In senior year, McVeigh was named Starpoint Central High School's most promising computer programmer, but he wow. maintained relatively poor grades until his 1986 graduation. That's crazy. McVeigh was introduced to firearms by his grandfather. He told people he wanted to be a gun shop owner and sometimes took firearms to school to impress his classmates. Wait, what? What? <laughs> that just hit me too. <laughs> I have not. I've, I haven't done any stuff because you were doing the stuff on this. I haven't heard any of this. That's crazy yeah. to me. Was <laughs> that not a red flag? Oh my god! That's what I said. Like a like a whole red <sighs> tint, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Good Jesus. Literally, specifically, remember getting in trouble for bringing a knife to school because my family we would play bingo at Thanksgiving and. Everybody brought a prize. This huge shop home barn is where we had it at my family's yeah. farm. And so the loft steps, we would put our presents over there. And we always, like, everybody always got, like, Swiss Army knives, pocket knives, you know, Nerf guns, mm -hmm. all kinds of country kids stuff. Yeah. Stuff that you, you had to grab it and make sure the hot wire fence was on. That was the way to initiate your newest younger cousin. <laughs> you could put that knife on the fence. Every time I got, like, a knife or a multi-tool or something, I was like, this is freaking neat. And I'm going to take it to school. And I'd take it to school and they'd be like, what the hell are you doing? You can't do that. You're a small child with a knife. <laughs> and there's this guy who's like, I'll take a gun. And they were just like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, cool. Cool. Is that like a Glock or what? I love it. I prefer Sig. <laughs> wow. Anyways. Okay. Jeez. McVeigh became intensely interested in gun rights as well as the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. After he graduated from high school and read magazines such as Soldier of Fortune, he briefly attended Bryant and Stratton College before dropping out. After dropping out of college, McVeigh worked as an armored car guard and was noted by co-workers to be obsessed with guns. You think? Yeah. He's a menace. One co-worker recalled an instance where McVeigh came to work looking like Pancho Villa wearing bandoliers. What? <laughs> came to work that way? <laughs> That's in what is going on? Oh my god. So many red flags. In May 1988, at the age of 20, McVeigh enlisted in U.S. Army Infantry School at Fort Benning, Georgia. While in the military, McVeigh used much of his spare time to read about firearms, sniper tactics, and explosives. McVeigh was reprimanded by the military for purchasing a white power t-shirt at a Ku Klux Klan protest against what? black servicemen who wore black power t-shirts around a military installation. Are you fucking kidding me? That's fucking disgusting. Wow. Wow. Yeah. At this point, I would have completely already wrote this dude off. Like, I'm, I'm done with that. You know? Like, I'm done with that guy. Fucking white supremacist piece of shit. Okay, so here's here's my problem. You're reprimanded by the military for this. Reprimanded. Not kicked uh. out. Not dishonorably discharged. Just reprimanded. Like, hey, hey, no, no. Don't slap their fucking wrist. Like, that's stupid. White supremacy is bad. It's it's for Hitler. We don't do that, okay? Okay. Jeez. What the hell, man? Kick him out. Yeah. Here is the thing that really disappoints me in knowing his outcome and what he became. Mm -hmm. He was a top-scoring gunner with the 25 cannon of the Bradley Fighting Vehicles. 
25 millimeter. He was first infantry division and was eventually promoted to sergeant. After being promoted to sergeant, McBay earned a reputation of assigning undesirable work to black servicemen (gasps) and frequently using racial slurs against them. No! He was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas before being deployed on Operation Desert Storm. So he went to Operation Desert Storm. Documented in McBay's authorized biography, American terrorist Timothy McBay and the tragedy at Oklahoma City, he stated he decapitated an Iraqi soldier with cannon fire on his first day in the war and celebrated. He said he was later shocked to be ordered to execute surrendering prisoners and to see carnage on the road leaving Kuwait City after U.S. troops routed the Iraqi army. McVeigh received several service awards, including the Bronze Star Medal. I don't know if you know how big of a deal that is. Pretty big deal. Yes, it's it's absolute bragging rights. Very respectable valor. National Defense Service Medal, Southwest Asia Service Medal, Army Service Ribbon, and the Kuwaiti Liberation Medal. Wow. Oh, this pisses me off. Okay. He aspired to join Special Forces. Like, he wanted to be a Green Beret. Of course he did. So... Okay, so he went over there to the Gulf War. When he returned, he entered the selection program, but he washed out on the second day of the 21-day assessment and selection course for the Special Forces. And he decided to leave the Army after that and was honorably discharged in 1991. So he signed up for the Army with the plans of being in Special Forces. He wanted to be a Green Beret and do his assessment. Like, that's what his goal was. So I'm pretty sure that whenever he was getting all the paperwork ready for that, they're like, okay, deployment time in the Persian Gulf. So he goes, does the Gulf War. He is actually extremely talented at what he does. Like, with especially with that cannon, he is a, a great marksman. He is good. He loves his tank. He absolutely loves his tank. He wires it up with a radio so that all the guys in his tank can, like, cruise around and listen to music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Playing war to him, but it was reality, and he fucking loved it, and he mm. was really good at it. And how can I mean, as good as you can be at being told to murder someone and doing it, you know what I mean? Jesus, I don't know. You're not programmed to do that. That's not a normal fuck thing. Yeah, but it was a big like bragging rights type thing among his like battalion. But then he would write home and write those people that I told you were his like bonus parents. Yeah. Their names were Liz and Jack McDermott. They were his neighbors. He would write them and be like, you know, I had to kill someone. This is how I feel about it. Like, I I wasn't expecting this. I don't like it. It's very, it's a very heavy burden kind of thing. Yeah. So who are you really? Are you seeing both sides of this? Are you just trying to save face and be tough because of where you're at? Or are you trying to convince your family that you're not just loving the blood of your enemies? Yeah. Like, did you sign up to just play with guns and you figured out it was, like, real shit over there? Or, yeah, or are you just kind of faking it because you really enjoyed it? Like, what? which one is this? Which one? Exactly. That's what I don't fucking know. And it could be either one. That's what really, that's what sucks about the Gemini and me sees both sides of everything and maybe two Mm -hmm. extra sides. It's really hard for me to discern. I don't, I don't understand him. And I'll never understand him because I'm not a fucking psychopath. So yeah, after the so he gets out of the military, and he cannot really adjust. I, as you know, with my brothers, I am fully versed in 
decompression. Like right. coming back into civilian life, trying to, and you can't, it's almost like whenever you give, this is ridiculous, but you're going to follow me. When you give dogs new food, how you have to mm-hmm. kind of mix it a little bit and mm-hmm. get them adjusted. It's yeah. that sort of like, they still need to go, they need to go to the range. They need to blow up things. They need to box things like with their, with their hands. Mm-hmm. They need things that they can do. To keep that adrenaline junkie in them pleased. And they're also no longer surrounded by people who understand their minds. They don't understand right. what they mean. The media is over here telling us one thing and they're over there fighting a war that's not that's not the fucking truth. We're not seeing yeah. the whole thing. We don't know everything. Everybody's right. a damn expert about it, but you weren't there. And that yeah. is your your battle, your brothers and sisters. Like that that's a whole different kind of family. And that mm-hmm. is absolute family. Like more so than blood most of the time. Oh, yeah. For him to come back and to try to be normal, it did not go well, obviously. Yeah. He went to where Terry Nichols lives and lived with him for a while. You know what we talked about with the Bever brothers? Uh-huh. What we talked about with them and the folie de Like, mm-hmm. I feel like maybe some of that happened because they became like... They're like into white supremacy things and the magazine thing. And they're really into firearms and they're, you know, they're getting that survivalist mentality that damn the government, I'm ready for an uproar, you know, just mutiny. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's probably just not the best friendship. And they met in, they met in the army, right? Yeah. 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 So they're really the only two that can really know what they're kind of going through when they got back I guess. Yeah and there's a lot of people who don't like my brothers all have PTSD and they deal with it in different ways and it comes out in different ways. It's not the exact same because you were not you're not the same person. You didn't have the same experiences and you didn't come home to the same experiences. Right. So that sort of trauma is going to change you in a different fucking way, you know? And it's mm-hmm. not, it's, sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's depression. Sometimes it's trying to self-medicate and escape reality, you know? Right. Sometimes it's needing to be involved in danger some more. Like, I was so happy when my brother got out of the Navy. I was like, hell yeah. And he was like, we need to talk. I want to be a cop. And I was like, oh, uh. my God. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever want to be safe? You just made me freak out about everything for the rest of my life. You're killing me. Okay, so he gets out, hanging out with Terry Nichols. All of a sudden, we need to start writing into the newspaper about things. What? Wait, what? Oh my goodness. Like, letter to the editor. Here we go. Someone give Tim a voice. He said, taxes are a joke. Regardless of what a political candidate promises, they will increase. More taxes are always the answer to government mismanagement. They mess up. We suffer. Taxes are reaching cataclysmic levels with no slowdown in sight. Is a civil war imminent? Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? I hope it doesn't come to that, but it might. Whoa! So he is already like, well, if we got to do something big, we got to do yes. something big. And in hindsight, whenever you see what he's done and then you look at what he says, you're like, holy shit, why didn't we look at that? But then at the same time, you're not thinking that this man is going to try and start a revolution on his own. You know what I mean? He, he's right. just th- it just seems like he's spitballing, thinking out loud kind of thing. I don't know. Mm. McVeigh also wrote to Representative John 
the false. I'm really sorry, New Yorkers. I'm not good. I'm not familiar with his name. Complaining about the arrest of a woman for carrying mace. He said, it is a lie if we tell ourselves that the police can protect us everywhere at all times. Firearms restrictions are bad enough, but now a woman can't even carry mace in her purse. Okay, Tim, you sound reasonable. Yeah. That sounds reasonable. If someone arrested you for carrying mace, I'd be like, what the hell's your problem? Yeah. She needs to protect herself. It is illogical to think that the police can be there to take care of you at all times. You need to be able to protect yourself. Exactly. That's why we do this podcast. Exactly. (laughs) Woo, you have the right to bear arms. While visiting friends in Decker, Michigan, I'm pretty sure that's where Terry Nichols lived. It is, yeah. Yeah. McVeigh reportedly complained that the army had implanted a microchip into his buttocks. <laughs> so that- Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. So that the government could keep track of him. Why there? He could I don't okay. know. Anywhere. Literally anywhere. <laughs> like, in all the movies, they put it in your forearm. So, anyways... McVeigh worked long hours in a dead-end job and felt that he did not have a home. He sought romance, but his advances were rejected by a co-worker and he felt nervous around women. He believed that he brought too much pain to his loved ones. He grew angry and frustrated at his difficulties in finding a girlfriend and he took up obsessive gambling. Ooh. This is how we get here. Yeah. Unable to pay back gambling debts, he took a cash advance and then defaulted on his repayments. Of course he did. He began looking for a state without heavy government regulation or high taxes. Mm. He became enraged when the government told him that he had been overpaid $1,058 while in the army and he had to pay back the money. No shit. Uh, I, mean, I would be mad too. How? That's so shitty. That's pretty shitty. So he wrote an angry letter to the government. Like you do. Inviting them to, quote unquote, go ahead, take everything I own, take my dignity, feel good as you grow fat and rich at my expense, sucking my tax dollars and property, unquote. Jeez. McVeigh introduced his sister to anti-government literature, but his father had little interest in these views. He moved out of his father's house and into an apartment that had no telephone, which had the advantage of making it possible for his employer to contact him for overtime assignments. Hmm. He also quit the NRA, viewing its stance on gun rights as too weak. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) Charlton Heston is disappointed in you, Timothy McVeigh. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So, up to Waco. In 1993, Timothy McVeigh drove to Waco, Texas during the siege to show his support. There were protesters there. Like, leave these people alone, protesters. Yeah. At the scene, he distributed pro-gun rights literature and bumper stickers bearing slogans such as, "When when guns are outlawed, I will become an outlaw. He told a student reporter... The government is afraid of the guns people have because they have to have control of the people at all times. Once you take away the guns, you can do anything to the people. You give them an inch and they take a mile. I believe we're slowly turning into a socialist government. The government is continually growing bigger and more powerful, and the people need to prepare to defend themselves against government control, unquote. Mm. Well, I mean, but also... That was his right to protest. And there's nothing wrong with protesting. I mean, that's an American right. So uh, up until this point, that's fine. 
<laughs> I don't give a shit. You protest all you want, especially protest against people trying to take our guns away. It's like, I'm sorry. I'm right there with you. I mean, I, I was raised by a fucking tank commander. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and that's exactly what they were trying to do. Yeah. I'm fine with it. Yeah. That, and, and I mean, when you get the ATF involved, I don't think anybody's so. mad at him protesting. I think oh, what what happened afterwards is right. the problem. Well, and not only that, this was like after Ruby Ridge and there were a bunch of white supremacist cults up. And so this kind of played in his to his white supremacy, too. I think this is why he took it so personal. But anyway. Okay. For the five months following the Waco siege, McVeigh worked at gun shows and handed out free cards printed up. He later considered putting aside his plan to target the Murrah building to target that agent or a member of his family instead. Like there were federal agents involved in the Waco siege. And what had happened that fucked him up so bad was that, so this tank that I told you that he loved so much, Mm -hmm. his precious toy, they used a tank exactly like it during the Waco siege. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so here you're thinking, and I see this, I get what he's thinking. It's fucked up. He took an oath to defend us against all threats, like both foreign and domestic. So here he is swearing to protect all of us. And he's watching that same military that he fought for use the same damn tank on civilians, the people he was fighting for. That's not right. That tank is actually what people are saying caused the fire. The military says they were using it to insert uh, uh, gas to knock everyone out. But there are there's like this documentary video somewhere that shows the end of the tank on fire. And then the whole compound catches on fire. So I can see how he would think. I mean, who knows what really happened? But I could I can see that. Anything they did with the tank, the tank should not have been there. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree on that 100%. Unnecessary. Yeah. Like, the the people that were inside, there's nothing, that was just fucking overkill. They were making a huge deal out of it. And what yeah. happened was, the government's basically, the military, the government, whoever the hell, is using these people as an example to scare everyone else. That's right. why they're going that extreme. They know it's not necessary, but they're doing it to prove a point to try and get some of these other groups to chill out or to scare them into thinking that they're not going to win against the military. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, these are still civilians. Like what the hell? That would mess me up too. Honestly, Mm -hmm. not mess me up to this extent because it's hypocrisy at its finest, but Jesus. So um, McVeigh became a fixture on the gun show circuit, traveling to 40 States and visiting about 80 gun shows. McVeigh found out that the further west he went, the more anti-government sentiment he encountered, at least until he got to what he called the People's Socialist Republic of California. (laughs) McVeigh sold survival items and copies of the Turner Diaries. So the Turner Diaries is a white supremacist, like, Bible, pretty much. Yeah, it, it, it should be burned, buried, blown up, whatever. I know that it has everything that you need to know about anything, like handguns, bombs, whatever. I know that it's got all that information in there. He had a road atlas with hand-drawn designations of the most likely places for nuclear attacks and considered buying property 
in Arizona, which he determined to be a nuclear-free zone. McVeigh Ooh. lived with Michael Fortier in Kingman, Arizona, and they became so close that he served as best man at Fortier's wedding. Wow. And McVeigh experimented with cannabis and methamphetamine after first researching their effects in an encyclopedia. Mm. He was never as interested in drugs as Fortier was, and one of the reasons they parted ways was McVeigh's boredom with 48 drug habits. <laughs> wow. Wow. Dude, don't you want to do more with yourself and be recorded? <laughs> Didn't he meet 48 in, in the army as well? Yeah. Uh, at one point, they all kind of compounded together at Terry Nichols' house. I don't know. If, so, um, hmm. Okay. So, in April 1993, McVeigh headed for a farm in Michigan where Terry Nichols lived. In between watching coverage of the Waco siege on TV, Nichols and his brother began teaching McVeigh how to make explosives out of readily available materials. Specifically, they combined household chemicals and plastic jugs. The destruction of the Waco compound enraged McVeigh and convinced him that it was time to take action, particularly the government's use of CS gas on women and children angered McVeigh, and he had been exposed to the gas as part of his military training and was familiar with its effects. The disappearance of certain evidence, such as bullet-riddled steel reinforced front door to, open to the complex, excuse me, led him to suspect a cover-up. You know, he's like, hmm, yeah, where is everything? McVeigh's anti-government rhetoric became more radical. He began to sell Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives hats, like ATF hats, riddled with bullet holes and a flare gun, which he said could shoot down an ATF helicopter. Oh my god. That's unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. He began experimenting with pipe bombs and other small explosive devices. The government also imposed new firearms restrictions in 1994 that McVeigh believed threatened his livelihood. He disassociated himself from his boyhood friend, Steve Hodge, by sending him a 23-page farewell letter. He Whoa. proclaimed his devotion to the United States Declaration of Independence, explaining in detail what each sentence meant to him. Oh my gosh. Holly, I love you, but I don't think I could read a 23-page letter from you like that. that. Ain't a bitch. There's not enough meth in the country. I don't have time to read this. Oh, oh man. my God. This poor guy. You know what? Fuck it. I don't want to be your friend anyways. Just, yeah. just say that and we'll move on. Holy shit. One line. That's all it takes. Let's not be friends anymore. Hashtag unfriend. Yes, good. <laughs> See you. Fuck around, Tim. <laughs> so he has said that those who betray or subvert the Constitution are guilty of sedition and or treason are domestic enemies and should and will be punished accordingly. It also stands to reason that anyone who sympathizes with the enemy or gives aid or comfort to said enemy is likewise guilty. I have sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will. And I will because not only did I swear to, but I believe in what it stands for in every bit of my heart, soul, and being. I know in my heart that I'm right in my struggle, Steve. I've come to peace with myself, my God, and my cause. Blood will flow the streets, Steve. Good versus evil. Free men versus socialist wannabe slaves. Pray it is not your blood, my friend. Jesus. Good God. 
McVeigh felt the need to personally visit sites of rumored conspiracies. He visited Area 51 in order to defy government restrictions on photography. He went to Gulfport, Mississippi to determine the veracity of rumors about UN operations. These turned out to be false. The Russian vehicles on the site were being configured for use in UN-sponsored humanitarian aid efforts. <laughs> I'm... Mm. Sure. Around this time, <laughs> McVeigh and Nichols also began making bulk purchases of ammonium nitrate, an agricultural fertilizer for resale to survivalists, what? since rumors were circulating that the government was preparing to ban it. Good lord. He told Fortier his plans to blow up a federal building. Fortier declined to participate. He also told his wife about the plans, and McVeigh composed two letters to ATF. The first titled Constitutional Defenders and the second ATF. He denounced government officials as fascist tyrants and stormtroopers and warned, ATF, all you tyrannical people will swing in the wind one day for your treasonous actions against the Constitution of the United States. Remember the Nuremberg War Trials. McVeigh also wrote a letter of recruitment to a customer named Steve Colburn. A man with nothing left to lose is a very dangerous man, and his energy and anger can be focused toward a common righteous goal. What I'm asking you to do then is sit back and be honest with yourself. Do you have kids, a wife? Would you back out at the last minute to care for the family? Are you interested in keeping your firearms for their current future monetary value? Or would you drag that 06 through rock, swamp, and cactus to get off the needed shot? In short, I'm not looking for talkers. I'm looking for fighters. Oh my God. Wow. And if you are a Fed, think twice. Think twice about the Constitution you're supposedly enforcing. Isn't enforcing freedom an oxymoron? Oh, he has a point. <laughs> well, sorry. I mean, I don't hate that. Anyways, and think twice about catching us with our guard down. You will lose just like Dagan did, and your family will lose. If I'm remembering correctly, I think Dagan was one of the officers who was shot and killed in the uh, Siege of Waco. Yeah, makes sense. In the sense that he's talking about it, you know? Yeah. He later said he considered a campaign of individual assassination with eligible targets, including Attorney General Janet Reno. Mm. Judge Walter Smith of Federal District Court, who handled the Branch Davidian trial which is Waco, and a member of FBI hostage rescue team who shot and killed Vicki Weaver in a standoff at a remote cabin at Ruby Ridge in Idaho. Um, Ruby Ridge, um, Vicki Weaver, I think they killed the kid too. Yeah, they did. I don't think yeah. it was just, yeah, like, so there was a there was another, like, white supremacist guy, culty guy, mm -hmm. and they killed his family. Um, the federal agents did, so... He wouldn't hand over his uh, stockpile of stuff, and they started firing on the government who was there to try to, you know, take their guns. And in the process, his wife and kid both got shot and killed. Yeah. He said he wanted Reno to accept full responsibility indeed, not just words. Such an assassination seemed too difficult, and he decided that since federal agents had become soldiers, it was necessary to strike against them at their command centers. According to McVeigh's authorized biography, he ultimately decided that he would make the loudest statement by bombing a federal building. After the bombing, he was ambivalent about his act, as he expressed in letters to his hometown newspaper. 
He sometimes wished he'd carried out a series of assassinations against police and government officials instead. Uh, man, fuck you. Right. I'm sorry. I just, I really don't know if this was quite the nationwide thing because we lived an hour away, you know? Right. And so it's all we saw for months. It's them going through the rubble. It's finding out how many people had shown up to help our state. It's watching a state that had just recovered from tornado season or, or going through tornado season was about to start tornado season. You know, you yeah. recover one year and then the next year you get hit all over again. And you watch mm-hmm. these people come together as a community over and over and over again. And then you want to come here. You're not even fucking from there. And you want to come down there and bomb a building on the off chance that there might be some agents in there. And he defected. Like, it hurts my feelings so fucking bad that a a soldier would do this. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, he spent several months with Nichols and Fortier gathering bomb materials in 1994, selling guns at trade shows for money and storing things in storage lockers. Working at a lakeside campground near McVeigh's old army post, he and Nichols constructed an... ANFO explosive device, ANFO, mounted in the back of a rented rider truck. The bomb consisted of about 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate and nitromethane. Timothy McVeigh transported the bomb via a rider truck, rider rental truck. He stated that the fuse was long enough to last for two minutes, and during transport, a block away from the Alfred P. Murrah building in a loading lane on the north side of the building is where he parked that was his targeted location because he thought that it could have the most blast radius for the building. However, on his way, he was caught at a red light and he was like a block away. So he went ahead and lit the fuse while he was sitting at this red light. And he said it was the longest red light he had ever been at, that the cab also started filling with smoke from the fuse because... In these box trucks, you have, just think of like a U-Haul. You have the front of it, and then you have the back of it, and those two places are separate. He had actually cut a hole through the back of the front cab that ran to the back where the bomb was, and he slit his the fuses. He had two fuses through there. One was a five-minute fuse, and one was a two-minute fuse. And so he went ahead and lit those at this red light. And the five-minute fuse was meant to be a backup in case the two-minute fuse didn't deploy the bomb. The cab started to fill with smoke, and he thought to himself, Oh, shit. This is, I'm stuck at a red light. I don't know if it's going to explode right now or if someone is going to be suspicious of me because they see all this smoke in the cab. And so he was literally rolling down his windows and wafting out smoke from these fuses while he was sitting at this red light. I don't know how no one saw this happen. They probably did and didn't think anything about it. Like, I wouldn't. I'd be like, oh, shit, he probably dropped his cigarette and it's burning in the carpet. It was a lot of smoke from from what he (laughs) describes. Like imagine people's uh, bellowing vapes these days. Imagine that coming out of the windows. I don't know how anyone couldn't see this. It's just... (laughs) Vape God. (laughs) He actually had turned on the fan in the truck, too, to try to, like, waft the smoke out of there. But he somehow made it from that stoplight to his targeted location a block away within that two minutes. When he got to the building, he pulled the truck, 
parallel to the building, pulled the parking brake, stepped out of the truck, made sure that the door was locked behind him, and then he literally casually walked away towards the YMCA, which was catty corner from the Murrah building. He went down an alley and towards the parking lot where he had left his getaway car, which was a beat-up yellow 1977 Mercury Marquee that he had purchased for $200. It was a land yacht. That thing was fucking huge. He had stashed the car there before driving to Kansas to pick up the rider truck. And he had left a note in the window that said, quote, not abandon. Please do not tow. Will move by April 23rd. Needs battery cable, unquote. And he also had a third backup plan that if he didn't hear the explosion by the time that he got into his getaway car, he was going to go back because he had a gun on him. He was going to go back and he had rigged the bomb to where he could shoot at a specific point in the truck and it would ignite the bomb from there. This was going to happen. He was going to make sure that it happened. And he was also anticipating that he might actually get blown up or shot and killed during this and he didn't care. Too bad that didn't happen. Right. I really kind of, I mean, I, I wish that him transporting this truck because he drove it from Kansas to Oklahoma. I really wish that it would have exploded on some lonely desert highway with just him inside, but I know. alternate histories, man. At 9.02 a.m., the bomb consisting of more than 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate exploded. The force of the explosion was of such magnitude that it destroyed approximately one-third of the Murrah building. The entire north face of the structure was reduced to rubble, and each of the nine floors plus the roof received extensive damage. Contents of the first and second floors were blown against the southern portion of the building, while the third through the ninth floors were initially raised up by the blast and then slammed downward because gravity and proceeded to pancake on top one another at street level. That's seven stories that's now at street level. And when the dust cleared, approximately one third of the structure was in a pile of debris measuring in some places about 35 feet high and running the length of the building. McVeigh said that he felt the quake of the blast so he knew that, quote, quote, unquote, or his mission was a success. He said he felt a sense of pride at that moment. <sighs> There's like a water treatment facility that's having a meeting and they're recording the minutes of their meeting. And the woman is talking and you can hear the explosion. I mean, just louder than shit in the background. They said, so multiple people caught on their business cameras that rider truck going by. And one guy was out on a loading dock and he was expecting someone to come and pick up parts. And he was like trying to wave them down because he was convinced that that was the guy that they were supposed to be coming to pick up his parts, you know? Right. As he enters his getaway car, it's so broken down, because remember he paid $200 for it, that he initially cannot get it to start. He is sitting there trying to get this car to start and he can hear like the calamity taking place outside screams and like all of this stuff happening and he's like just calmly trying to start this car he said to himself just be calm you don't want to be apprehended in oklahoma city five minutes after the blast he finally got it started and drove nonchalantly to the highway 
He said he drove the speed limit and stopped at all traffic lights. At the time of the blast, the Murrah building housed some 600 federal and contract workers, as well as an estimated 250 visitors. Federal agencies housed in the Murrah building included the ATF, the DEA, the Secret Service, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Social Security Administration, the U.S. Army and U.S. Marine Corps recruitment offices, which you would think being a military man, he would have at least a heart for his brethren. You know what I mean? It also housed the Department of Defense, the U.S. Customs Service, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Transportation, the General Services Administration, the Office of the Federal Employees Credit Union, and the America's Kids Child Care Development Center. McVeigh said in his confession tapes that he chose the location literally out of the phone book, that he had scanned several phone books from several different states, and he was looking exclusively for a federal building that housed multiple agencies in that one building. McVeigh said that he bombed the building on the second anniversary of the fire at Waco in 1993 to retaliate for U.S. government actions there, and that that at the siege of Ruby Ridge. McVeigh rationalized the inevitable loss of life by concluding that anyone who worked in the federal building was guilty by association with those responsible for Waco. The building was chosen not only because it housed all of those federal things in one place, but also because it housed the ATF division that had conducted the raid at Waco. The damage extended throughout Oklahoma City's downtown, covering an estimated 48-square-block area. The explosion overturned automobiles and numerous vehicles erupted into flames after the blast. Extensive structural damage was not limited to the Murrah Building, though. It was also extended to the Regency Tower, which is a 24-story building, and also it was a 273-unit apartment complex. And it was located a block to the west, Directly north of the Murrah building was the two-story Oklahoma Water Resources Board office where they were having that meeting you were talking about. The six-story historic journal record building and the three-story Athenan building received heavy damage as well. Surrounding structures which received the brunt of the explosion included the First Methodist Church, the YMCA to the east, the Federal Courthouse to the south, and the St. Joseph's Old Cathedral and Rectory and U.S. Post Office to the west. All in all, over 300 buildings were damaged in the blast. My very favorite priest that I ever had, I was his altar server, and he had his mother's wedding set made into his chalice. The priests have their own. And it was very marred up and scratched and dented. And I asked him about it. He was the priest at that church when that happened. No. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. But um, that's that's how intense it was. His chalice is messed up. That's insane. The explosion knocked out primary and backup phone lines for the Emergency Medical Services Authority, which is IMSA, who is the local ambulance service there. 911 was the only communication remaining. The first call for medical assistance was received by IMSA at 9.03. However, upon hearing the blast, seven EMS units responded from IMSA's headquarters, like before any, they just immediately responded, which is pretty awesome. 
Yeah, it is. It makes my stomach drop because how it's nowhere near enough. Seven is a lot, but it was, you know what I mean? There's just no, ugh. Yeah. Well, and not only that, I know a lot of first responders who were off duty that responded. My friend that I was telling you about actually lived close by, I want to say like five miles away, but he was having his morning coffee when he heard the blast and it like shook the house and he was like, something's going down. And so he just headed that way immediately and he was off duty. I mean, we were, we were in class and we thought there was an earthquake and then it was moments later they were like, all right, something has happened. You need to stand up for a moment of prayer. What the hell happened? Yeah. There were some people that claimed that they could feel it five miles away, some people from 30 miles away, some people all over Oklahoma. So it's absolutely insane. The first in fire companies were faced with an overwhelming rescue operation. The closest fire emergency response units to the scene were the Oklahoma City Fire Department's Station 1, which was five blocks away. Emergency personnel and equipment from that station responded immediately to the bombsite. As personnel approached the scene, firefighters encountered debris scattered through the streets, covering several blocks surrounding the Murrah building. They had to literally clear passages manually just to get to the building, like by hand. Additionally, firefighters encountered injured victims fleeing the blast site. They remember, and I say they, because this is first responders and victims alike, remember smoke everywhere, hearing babies crying, hearing the mothers screaming because they couldn't find their kids. And some of those mothers actually turned around and were trying to run back into the building and they were having to be stopped by these first responders So people were covered in blood and dirt, gaping wounds, some with burns, some with crush injuries, some with all of the above. Firefighters started searching for survivors at what would have been the daycare center. That's where they decided to start removing rubble and they had to remove rubble by hand. And they did that by hand because the building was still unstable And if you start clearing it away, it's going to start falling in. And at that time, there were uh, like, I think the first report said 300 people that were still missing, like at at this point. And they just didn't want to take, they didn't want to risk injuring anyone else or killing anyone else. So they formed this like line. First responders and volunteers kind of lined up. And they would hand each other rubble, hand each other rubble. So realizing that the injuries would be numerous, two medical triage areas were quickly established. Without delay, fire emergency medical law enforcement personnel, voluntary organization workers, and many civilians just entered the bombed structure in a massive search and rescue effort. They just ran in. This is crazy to me because these people literally put their safety on the back burner to run into this structure that was insanely unstable just to try to save as many people as they could. There there were times when, like, I, I specifically remember them saying they were going to hold off on 
searches until they'd gone through everything that they could, but it was just impossible. But they were like, we can't fucking hold off. But they thought there might be another bomb. They were, they were yeah. worried that there was going to be more than one. Because for people who have never seen this, I can blink and see this building in my fucking memory. Like, it will never go away. But if you have not seen this, if you were to take, like, a square building and take a bite out of it, like, literally, like, it's like a sandwich. If you took a huge bite out of a sandwich, that that's what it looks like. So now it's not only structurally damaged, but you've got lines exposed, electrical lines, you know, Exactly. Gas lines, whatever. And then on top of, they were like, okay, you only blew up half the building. Was it in your, was it your intention to do this even more so, you know? So right. when right. you're looking at the building, you can just see it's just completely every level, every floor is exposed and the front part is collapsed. So yeah, mentally, if you can picture that. They had two subsequent bomb scares and that is kind of, it kind of forced an evacuation of these personnel, the people who were running back into the building, because they didn't know if another bomb was going to go off. So they evacuated the whole thing. And which is, it's kind it's a good thing because it allowed officials to create this like controlled perimeter around the site so that you could kind of get a head count. Like people can't just go back in and you kind of know where for the most part people are and who's unaccounted for. They completely evacuated. Rescue workers were not allowed to re-enter the site until confirmation was given that no additional explosives were located. Once they cleared the site, and while this is happening, 9.45 a.m., Governor Frank Keating ordered a state of emergency. He released from duty all Oklahoma City area non-essential state personnel as a safety measure. He straight up drove down to the site, him and Lieutenant Governor Mary Fallon at the time both arrived at about 10 o'clock in the morning and they started like debriefing and situation uh, management and all that stuff. At 10.35 a.m., Regional Director Young for FEMA Dallas had briefed FEMA headquarters in Washington, D.C., and they organized a group of key staff to accompany him to Oklahoma City. So FEMA immediately put the search and rescue, the urban search and rescue task force from Phoenix, Arizona and Sacramento, Arizona on alert. And only 20 minutes later, activated each of them for deployment to Oklahoma City. So it was only an hour later that FEMA was on its way. The ATF and the DEA joined forces with the FBI and their respective staff spent the afternoon establishing operations centers and doing field operations. And Weldon Kennedy of the Phoenix, Arizona office of the FBI was assigned special agent in charge. So they were trying to manage this situation that no one ever could have imagined would happen. We have a lot of people don't realize that we do have our police and our National Guard we have military here, tons of military here. Mm -hmm. And all of these people are very well briefed and trained on, like my brother is on the CERT team, which is like the SWAT team. Like it's, it's an emergency response team. 
And so we have several things already implemented. It's kind of like what's going on in our nation right now. They're like, oh my God, you know, they have to bring in a mobile makeshift morgue and they have to put bodies in this refrigerated truck and all this kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. We are actually prepared for that. It's not normal. It's not run of the mill, but we're not scrambling to figure out what the hell to do. You know what I mean? Right. Nothing catches us off guard. We're fucking America, first of all, not to sound cocky, but... It's, it's it's not yeah. you know what I mean it's not it, it's it's terrible and you're like okay but we also there there are plans that you know nothing about that are already ready to be implemented and it's because we have earthquakes and wildfires you know in in California then we started mm-hmm. having these fucking mass shootings at schools then we had mass shootings at concerts and movies and then all the the gulf and their fun with hurricanes and, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like we we have things implemented in place. We have emergency response teams of all kinds for this sort of thing. It's so insanely humbling whenever you see the way that Americans act, whenever you're actually being an American. You're not yeah. a Democrat or a Republican or a Christian or an atheist. You're not black or a cop or this or that or whatever. All the shit that they do to, like, pitch you against each other. When a tragedy occurs, everyone is suddenly just an American. Mm-hmm. And to watch all these Americans come and help fight for these people and their lives and go through rubble and put themselves in danger for them. It's From just all like, over the nation all over the damnation but and and speaking of that they already had plans to implement in case something like this happened for a temporary morgue and that was almost immediately established at the first methodist church in oklahoma city at 3:30 p.m. the first christian church was established by the state medical examiner's office as the site of the family assistance center aka the compassion center immediate family members could go there and wait there to receive accurate briefings directly from the state medical examiner's office on if they found their loved one or not yeah i never knew about that that's oh at the time when they established this compassion center there were still 167 people missing so oh my god it's freaking heartbreaking center support was provided by many organizations the red cross was there the salvation army the oklahoma funeral directors association and many pastors chaplains and mental health professionals throughout the area state and even nation showed up they opened a shelter for those displaced by the explosion because like i said right almost right next door to this building was a apartment complex and now those people for safety reasons you know they're being evacuated out of that building and they're displaced so they set up this this center the red cross did they also activated the national disaster services human resources team to administer large-scale disaster assistance to victims of the incident feed the children actually came in and brought them a lot of stuff the salvation army brought a lot of stuff so that they could get food bottled water stuff like that the oklahoma restaurant association who had just finished their annual conference when the explosion occurred they quickly established a 24-hour food service operation at the myriad convention center 
to feed all emergency response workers, which I think is phenomenal because those people were out there. They didn't eat. They didn't sleep. There were people that oh, were yeah. working to the bone trying to, yeah. you know, help with search and rescue and all of this stuff. And just the amounts of people that they were treating and like trying to get to hospitals and stuff like that. Like they, they didn't think about eating all day and night. They had those work lights out there so that they yeah. could just continue because there's they're, the search you know, the the search part of like getting on that big ass concrete and everything moved out of the way and Oh yeah. It was so insane that they could not protect us from seeing that shit. Like the newspapers, that very famous picture of the firemen carrying that baby. The wounds and the blood and the head, like normally the media kind of shelters you from that. Like if there's a car accident, there's not gonna be a body in the picture. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It was so massive. And there was so much trauma that we couldn't be protected from it. I'm sitting there as an eight-year-old. I remember every single, I remember all of this shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And my mother still has that cutout, that newspaper cutout. It's on our refrigerator. So really? So I saw that picture every day of my wow. life. Yes, because it's just, it, it's, it's got a prayer for the first responders. And then that picture is the headliner of it. My heart. I know. I know I keep saying this. I I don't know how else to say it. We're just normally sheltered from stuff like that, you know? Yeah. The pictures. Like, if you want to go digging for, like, a crime scene picture to see something gory, you know, you do that on your own You have to dig. Yeah, you do. You have to dig for it, though. Yes. But there was no way the media was just... You couldn't get around it. You were seeing bodies. You were seeing blood. You were seeing mangled people with their clothes blown off. Their clothes were blown off. Yeah. Like, that's insane to me. There were other, there were like just regular people who would, who were volunteering their services to the first responders as well, which included like chiropractic services and massage therapy. They were just coming out like, hey, we need, I know you are working right now. And, and my husband has this issue too. Like it's work, 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 save these lives. Don't worry about me. And these people were coming in going, you need to sit for a minute. You need to eat. We need to check <laughs> you out. Like you, you need to just, can you just take a minute, please? Because they were so focused, which I, which is amazing. But, and AT&T was actually providing free telephone calls home to anyone who was in the search and rescue task forces from out of state, which is also amazing. Eventually the, Marriott Hotel would house nine of the 11 search and rescue task forces from out of state. So at 4 p.m., President Clinton announced that he had signed Emergency Declaration FEMA 3115 EMOK. And this declaration permits the federal government to provide emergency assistance to save lives, protect property, public health and safety, and to lessen or avert the threat of further damage. It also authorized 100% federal financial reimbursement for all eligible response missions that performed by local or state government. Amazing. The search and rescue task force from Phoenix arrived at about 10.45 p.m. The Sacramento U.S. and R. task force arrived at 11 p.m. Is that not incredible? That's 13 hours from Phoenix to Oklahoma City 
from the time it happened, they had to have set out like, all right, that's it. We're going to Oklahoma. I say it's it's such a humbling feeling, Raven. Like it's so humbling, even though it's not, I would love to say it's not personal, but it was, it was very personal. It was very, it was very hurtful. It was very confusing. It was very, <clears throat> it's still hard to talk about. <laughs> it was very hard to watch and try to understand. Mm-hmm. It honestly feels personal. Like they personally came to help you, to save yeah. you. And it had nothing to do with you. It's just your neighbors in a situation that you never, ever want to see. Yeah. And it doesn't make sense. And they worked to the bone for 17 days straight, which is, I mean, like hardly any breaks, day and night, search and rescue missions continued for 17 days. They had to go through a mountain of debris, which most of it was deposited at the north face of the Murrah building. And it was removed almost entirely by hand. Oh, my God. So incredible. These search and rescue teams were, again, moving things with five-gallon buckets. Fill the bucket, remove it. Fill the bucket, remove it. Because, one, there there's possibility that there are survivors underneath there. But also, there is the possibility that there are bodies and they wanted to try to respect the families and not let the media get those pictures. Yeah. And so doing it by hand, they could kind of control that. And not only that, but the structure was still completely unsturdy. And they wanted to see if they could find anything for evidence while they were doing this. There were so many things that they had to think about when they were doing these search and rescue missions. During that 17-day mission, rescue workers were subjected to high winds, rain, sleet, lightning, hail. I mean, like you were saying, it was moving into tornado season. And the weather is insane here for people who don't live in Oklahoma, (laughs) who don't know what it's like. The weather has no idea what it wants to do at any given moment. It could change its mind at any given moment. I think there's a quote somewhere that said, and I can't remember who it's by, so I apologize, but it said to try to predict Oklahoma weather is insanity because you just can't. It just changes on a whim. And these people were working through all of that, which is absolutely incredible. And these are people, most, a lot of them, who had probably never been to Oklahoma before. They're like, what is this shit weather? What is happening? (laughs) Well, you've got... From the, from the northwest, you've got the wind coming off the Rockies, and it's chilly, and it's not as humid. And then you've got the humidity coming up from the Gulf and swirling around, hence why that's Tornado Alley in the first fucking place. Yeah. It, it does not know. And then out here in Texas, like Panhandle and all this shit, there's like the plains. So then that's all windy as shit. <laughs> oh, my God. I just can't. They're probably, and as it started heating up, they're probably like, dear God. I can't imagine the people who come from California, they're like, what is this humidity? What is this? I don't understand. <laughs> so if you get out of the shower and you dry off, don't put your towel away. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
but yeah i mean it's it's incredible what they worked through and then so shortly after midnight on may 5th search and rescue operations were determined to be officially complete it was anticipated at the time that three bodies were still in the rubble they had not accounted for three people and Due to believed location and potential safety hazards, the decision was made to leave the remaining bodies in the rubble until after the implosion of the structure. Can you imagine making that kind of call? Because I can't. No. They have to set up, like, there's a lot to to demolish a building that goes into that. You know, you're also wondering, are, this might sound horrible, but you're also wondering, are we going to get those bodies out intact? Are we going to be able to send them home to their family? You know, when you only have three left, I'd be like, okay, now we go into overtime, like even more overtime, 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 like find the fucking people. There's no way I couldn't, I don't know. I believe that they had determined that where they thought these people were, because at this time, they knew who was missing, and they knew what departments that these people worked in. Probably inaccessible or something. Yeah, they had some sort of idea of where they would have been in the building, and they thought that those places were just way too structurally unsound to get to them. And... I understand you don't want to put any more lives at risk. So that must have been such a horrible decision to make. I can't imagine that. So on April 26th, the state of Oklahoma requested and received presidential major disaster declaration FEMA 1048DROK. And this declaration activated a multitude of recovery and relief programs for victims' families, the injured, small business owners, and public entities that were all impacted by this. The RCC would meet basically on a weekly basis, and to date, they have distributed over $2 million in donated funds to help these people try to get back on their feet. Which is pretty awesome. And as soon as the president signed the declaration, the national toll-free teleregistration system was activated for those people. So they could just call in, like immediately get assistance. And the Family Assistance Center, or the Compassion Center, was officially transferred to the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services on May 5th and became known as Project Heartland. That day, when, when that went into effect they also had a memorial service for just the rescue and recovery workers for the victims like they all gathered together and had a memorial memorial service for the victims like on their own that was not it was closed to the media it was closed to the public it was just for them oh my heart so they stopped these recovery efforts after 17 days april 26th on Tuesday, May 23rd, 7.02 a.m., they demolished the building. The three remaining victims were found where they had predicted that they would have been. They were able to get them to their loved ones. The final three bodies, those of two credit union employees and a customer, they were recovered. This would bring the final death count to 168, including 19 children, 
and an Oklahoma City nurse who had responded to the incident and was mortally wounded when she was uh, struck in the head with a piece of falling debris. 98 of those who perished were government employees, and there were more than 700 known injuries. There were 388 people, 340 adults, and 48 children from three months old to 85 years old in the building at the time of the explosion. And on impact, 163 of those people perished. McVeigh said that he had no knowledge that the federal offices ran a daycare center on the second floor of the building and that he might have chosen a different target if he had known about it. Nichols said that he and McVeigh knew there was a daycare center in the building and that they did not care. Well, it says right here, during an interview with Ed Bradley for television news magazine 60 Minutes in 2000, Bradley asked McVeigh for his reaction to the deaths of 19 children. McVeigh stated, I thought it was terrible that there were children in the building. So there you go again, being two different people. Are you fucking bipolar? Mm-hmm. Maybe. It's possible. Who knows? I mean, he, I don't. It's absolutely possible because these neighbors talk about how outgoing he was and how good he was with children. And then I heard that he just became more and more of a recluse. He's just, you know, hermited himself and it just his mood and his attitude and shit got worse and worse and worse. I'm going to tell you about a couple of the survivors. Six of those survivors included a group of children from the daycare center. And the only way that they survived is because they had a table near kind of the center of the building where they were near a bathroom. And one of those children was actually in the bathroom at the time. But those other five were sitting at this table. And that's literally the only reason why they survived. One survivor had 40 broken bones from crush injuries. Oh my god. And that included like her pelvis was broken, she had crushed feet, like she was put into a five week coma to uh, a medically induced coma to help her get through this because the pain was just absolutely so severe. Yeah, you shouldn't be awake for that. Yeah, no. And when she finally came out of it, she had to be taught how to talk again, how to walk again, how to eat again, how to brush her teeth. And she still to this day has compromised lungs. She's still not okay. Like some of them died of crushed lungs. Some of them died of a broken neck. Some of them died. You know, there are a lot of different causes of death in that building. Whether they died immediately, five minutes later, 20 minutes later, four days later, doesn't fucking matter. There's all kinds of different kinds. So another victim had plaster from the building that when the blast went off, it came off of the building and it was like shoved up under her skin in a lot of places that she had to have, they had to remove it surgically. She also had face and neck injuries. She had one ear that was cut in half and there was like a crap ton of shrapnel that was taken from her back. In total, she had about four feet of stitches done. Four feet of stitches Only three people were extracted alive after the first five hours following the explosion. There were up to 50,000 people in the Oklahoma City area that reportedly suffered PTSD-related symptoms in the aftermath. I'm not entirely convinced that I don't have PTSD from it. I know. Well, that's why I say reportedly. 
I watched it every freaking day. Like that's what my grandmother, there was a television in the kitchen and while she would make dinner, you know, the TV would be on while we had dinner we'd watch the news. And it's just like, that's all I saw for a month. I don't remember seeing any of the things that you say that you saw. I think that my mother did a good job or something of sheltering me from that because I do not remember seeing the news. I don't remember seeing newspapers. I remember them coming to us in school. Yeah, I was in elementary school and they told us what happened. We had this like the intercom. They told us what happened and then we a couple... I think want to say a month or two later, we had like a memorial where we all went outside and we did this like memorial thing. And we did that every year from then on. But that's literally, I don't remember any of the stuff that you remember. So I don't know if it was like my mom who was just like sheltering the crap out of me or what. I don't know why certain things, the things that I remember, I distinctly remember the Gulf War. And that's because of other reasons. I remember the, I remember Waco. I remember the Murrah bombing. I remember like where I was, what I was doing, what student I was sitting across from. You know what I mean? Like there's there's shit that that I remember everything. I do remember 9-11. I can, yeah, I can tell you exactly where I was, what time it was, how much of it I saw. It was Channel 1 News. There's certain traumas that happened to me as a child and even in adulthood that I've blocked out can't remember mm-hmm. them never it's like it never freaking happened and yeah. then there's certain things where it's like something historical shit i should probably remember this all of this like when they did the demolition it took them several days to haul all that out of there and there was like 800 right. tons of debris just from the site itself that's so much like this was this was a nine story building but yeah i can't i can't imagine living in Oklahoma City where you have to see this every day I can definitely see why there would be people with PTSD and there's probably you're right there's probably way more than 50,000 but that's just you know like reported to medical personnel or whatever that 50,000 the general services administration immediately sought to replace the facility like they they wanted to rebuild on top of it immediately and a lot of other people were like no you can't you have to that's like a sacred site now so yeah that's hollow almost like hollowed ground like it's no yeah Mm -mm. so they decided to get a new space and i want to say the new one was like 185,000 square feet designed by ross barney architects of chicago illinois and constructed on a two city block site, one block north and west of where the former building was standing. So the new building's design included blast-resistant glazing. Do you blame them? Right. The structural design also is supposed to resist progressive collapse. I'm not an architect. I don't know anything about any of that, but to me, that sounds like it's bombproof, right? Hopefully. As close to it as you can get. Yeah. So, throughout all of the event of the bombing, ODCEM 
emergency management utilized a full-time staff of about 25, like 24 hour operations, people who were there 24 hours. And since that time, six of those 25 have left the department. Like we were talking about with the, the Girl Scout murders, Oh, yeah. And how a bunch of the FBI agents after that, like, were like, I'm out, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. We kind of had that situation as well, which is completely understandable. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?